In terms of announcements, just a reminder that this Saturday we have our men's prayer breakfast at 7.30. Invite some men, especially if they live in the Congressional District 2, which is previously a Ted Poe's district, and Ted Poe's retiring from Congress, and so there's a runoff election next Tuesday. I've already voted. This is early voting this week. So uh, next Tuesday is the main uh, runoff uh, between Kevin Roberts and Dan Crenshaw in the Republican, uh, Republican primary. And Dan Crenshaw will come and speak to us on Saturday morning. Also, for those going to Israel, many are listening online, a couple are here. Uh, things are all coming together, and so we'll, uh, we'll see how it all works out. If you've been keeping up with the news, things have been a little exciting in some parts. I always tell people when they express a little concern that there's a lot of crime in some parts of Houston, in some parts of uh, New York, or some parts of Washington, D.C., But when we go there, we don't go to those parts of town. And when we go to Israel, we don't go where uh, where the trouble is if there is trouble. So we will be we will be uh, leaving in or arriving in Israel three weeks from today. So uh, please be in prayer for that group and that everything will come together. All the logistics, all the travel, everything like that will work out. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are spiritually prepared to worship. By that, I mean that we're in right relationship with God through our walk by the Holy Spirit. And that means that if necessary, we need to confess sin in order to, in order to be cleansed and prepared for study of the Word. Got the sniffles and like I'm getting some allergies or something. Okay, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Father, we're thankful again that we can be here tonight, that we can study your word, reflect upon your word, probe it, think deeply about what you have revealed to us and why you have revealed it to us. Help us to understand it, and especially as these passages relate to our personal worship of you and our corporate worship of you. Father, help us to understand that so often we are so busy, so absorbed with our own schedules and our own activities that we fail to take into account our relationship with you. Father, I pray that we would all be learning to enjoy our ongoing relationship with you and excited about what we're reading and studying and learning in your word and that we might continue to press on because this is simply laying the foundation for all eternity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, where we are studying about worship, It's interesting that today I was cleaning out a drawer and I found 
a tape. The tape was titled Developing Quality Worship. The date on the tape was like March 9th, 1989, and I was a speaker, and the scripture was 1 Chronicles 15 and 16. So, if we can figure out how to take that analog tape and make it digital, we may have a legacy message to put up on the website so you can hear something from 29 years ago. So that was, in fact, when I remember when I was studying through that, that was the first time I really began to develop what I've been teaching now. So tonight we're going to be looking at a little bit more in Isaiah and focusing a lot on two key words that are often misunderstood today. They're words that are so common and words we use so often, and they're used in Christianity, and they've almost lost their their significance and the impact that they should have. And these are the words, holy and glory. And so we'll get into that because both of these words are used when we look at uh, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. Just a reminder, Al Ross in his book, Recalling the Hope of Glory, says, our attention to the Lord must not be an ordinary part of, of life. Our worship of him should be the most momentous, urgent, and glorious activity in our lives. Notice he uses the word glorious there, but when he uses the word ordinary, that's really the opposite of what holy means. The word that is used in as an opposite or in an antonym for holy in the scriptures, a word that means that which is common or profane that profane doesn't mean profanity. It means that which has an everyday use. So you can have bowls, you can have uh, various other uh, physical articles or furniture that has a profane use. It's a common use. You just use it on, you know, every day at every meal. But there were those bowls that were only used on Shabbat when you were worshiping God. There would be those bowls that were used in the as furniture as articles in the tabernacle of the temple they were holy doesn't mean they were morally pure as you've heard me say many times sometimes when you're you know more we think of holy as moral purity the place where that word picks up the nuance is in this passage in this passage, now when does this happen? This happens around 740 B.C. When did the word holy first get used? Well, you've got to go all the way back into Genesis. So Genesis takes place around 4000 B.C., and this is 740 B.C. So you have around over 3,000 years have gone by, and only now is that additional nuance being added to the word. So the core idea of holy, as we'll see, is to be set apart to the service of God. And we'll get into those details as we get there. So in this statement, Al picks up both ideas that worship is distinct from that which is ordinary. And again, as I say, when we look at what normally takes place in a lot of churches, it's 
the idea, the philosophy that has been around is the idea that this should be make people feel comfortable with what they normally experience, the same kind of music they listen to on the radio all the time, the same kind of you know, other activities that should make them feel comfortable because it's normal. And the reality is, is that worship is to be set apart and distinct because it's holy. Now, I get repetitious. Interesting thing is there's a pastor, younger pastor, who's been listening to me for about 20 years. And Monday, he texted me and said, that was an outstanding message about faith and evidence on on Sunday. And he said, I've heard you teach this many times, but I finally understood that faith undergirds why you do it that way, and you don't teach that faith is another way of knowing as opposed to empiricism and rationalism, and that that faith undergirds all of them, and it just it was like a big wake-up call on Sunday, and I've heard you teach it, and I just hadn't realized that because if you make faith, re- reason, and experience three different systems of knowing, then you're juxtaposing faith versus reason. That's paganism. It's either faith is contrary to reason or experience, and that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that faith is rational and it fits experience, but faith has to precede, or revelation has to precede uh, our understanding of faith and reason. So if that individual who's exceptionally bright and well-trained and educated and has been studying this for at least 20 years has a wake-up call hearing it for the umpteenth time, that's why we do repetition, okay? I don't want to get boring in the repetition. Okay, as we get into Isaiah 6, we talk about angels. We're going to talk about angels in Isaiah 6. We're going to go to Revelation 4. We're going to talk about angels there. So let's just review this classification of angels. In the Old Testament, you have all of the angels referred to as sons of God, and that means they're originally created by God. And so all the angels, holy angels and elect angels versus fallen angels are all... Um, the sons of God. The army of God is called the host of God. Host is just an archaic English word meaning army. So there's that emphasis in the Psalms, especially about the Lord of hosts. This refers to the angelic army and also sometimes identified as the chariots of God. The cherub, cherubim in the Hebrew is, uh, I am ending is plural. They have four wings, according to Genesis 3.24, Ezekiel 1.5-24, and Ezekiel 10.1-15, and Hebrews 9.5. Now, those passages, Ezekiel 1.5-24 describes the cherubs, Ezekiel, but it doesn't name them or identify them as cherubs, just says these beings. And then in Ezekiel 10, it describes them again, but names them as cherubs there. That's important because they are these incredibly powerful warrior-type angels who stand very close to the throne of God. And they're not only described in Ezekiel chapter uh, 1, but also in chapter 10. And I want to go there. We read Ezekiel 1 last time, and I want to read a few verses from Ezekiel chapter 10. In Ezekiel chapter 10, 
Ezekiel is another one who gets a look at the throne room of God. Isaiah does in Isaiah 6. We see uh, Ezekiel in Ezekiel 10, and we see John in Revelation chapter 4. And Ezekiel says, And I looked, and there in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared something like a sapphire stone having the appearance of the likeness of a throne. Now, I want you to keep that image in mind because when we go to Revelation 4, we're going to see a very similar description. Then he spoke to the man, that is, he being God, spoke to the man clothed with the linen and said, Go in among the wheels. The man clothed with linen is Ezekiel. He is a uh, prophet, he says, go in among the wheels under the cherub, fill your hands with coals of fire from among the cherubim. So we have this picture of fire there. They're very similar to what we see in Isaiah. Remember what we'll see in Isaiah 6-4 is that Isaiah, as he's confronted with the presence of God, he says, woe is me, a man of unclean lips, and a seraphim, one of the seraphim, a seraph picks up a coal of fire and flies and cleanses or purges the lips of Isaiah. And so here we see the same kind of thing, is that there is a fire uh, in the midst of this, uh, in the midst of the cherubim. So they are different. They have four wings. Seraphim have six wings, so they're different, but they're similar and have a similar function. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple, When the man went in, the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. Now, that's how we normally think of the Lord's glory. We think of it, the phrase that we use is the word Shekinah glory. From the the Hebrew word is Shekinah which means to dwell. So it's really the dwelling glory of God. But what we see is the effect of who God is. That's the bright light. John tells us in 1 John that God is light. And so when God appears, he is a brilliant light. He is a pure, pure light. So the point that I am making is that light is a manifestation of who he is, of his character. And and this word glory doesn't mean uh, a bright and shining light. It, it is really a word that, that has a slightly different meaning, and it emphasizes the centrality and significance and importance of God. And as a result of who he is as being the most important in the universe, the most significant, without God there's nothing, then that is manifested secondarily through this light, this effulgence that comes out from his character. So we hear uh, verse 5, he talks about the wings of the cherubs, the voice of Almighty God when he speaks. And then I want to skip down, and he mentions in verse 7, the cherub stretched out his hand from among the cherubim. So there's a, it's like there's a tight group. And he stretched out his hand from among the cherubim to the fire that was among the cherubim and took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed with linen who took it and went out. Okay, so this, again, is similar to the purification of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. 
And then describes that the cherubim appear to have uh, the form of a man's hand under their wings. We're going to see that with the living creatures, the living beings in Revelation 4. And then we see this other description coming up with this this wheeled thing that is is part of their uh, what they're appearing in. And then in verse 10, we read, as for their appearance, all four looked alike, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. A lot of people try to understand what that means. When they went, they went toward the four directions. So there's four of them. Like we'll see four living creatures in Revelation, but they're described differently, so they're not identical. Their body, they have hands, they have wings, uh, they're full of eyes all around. Now, this is an interesting imagery of eyes because the eye is the gate of light into the soul. So eyes are used as a, uh, as a metaphor for learning, for knowledge, for enlightenment. And so when it talks about all of these eyes, we'll see it again in Revelation chapter 4, that when we see that, it, it, there's an emphasis there on their knowledge. They're full of eyes indicates that they're, they're filled with knowledge. They're not omniscient, but they're filled with knowledge. And verse 14, each one had four faces. The first looked like the face of a cherub. That communicates a lot, doesn't it? We don't know what a cherub looks like. So the first face of the cherub looks like a cherub. The second face like that of a man, the third the face of a lion, and the fourth is the face of an eagle. Now, there are other descriptions where there's an ox in there. So uh, they're clearly different from the living beings who just have one face instead of four. So this is that picture, and I wanted to go over that because that's not something we normally look at, and we talk about them, but it's important to understand this significant, and they're very close to the throne of God, and Satan before his fall, was the head of the cherubim. He is the anointed cherub who covered, which indicates that he had a particular particular role next to the throne of God, and he would have covered the throne of God with his wings. And he's called the anointed one, which is the same word used for Christos, translated as Christos, it's Mashiach. It just means there there. there are different people identified as those specifically appointed by God to a mission. Uh, Cyrus, the Persian, was called a uh, anointed by God. Doesn't mean he was a believer. It just means he's appointed to a position. Does just because Satan was anointed, the anointed cherub, doesn't mean he's always going to be righteous. He fell afterwards. So this is the picture of the cherubs. They have four wings. And they're pictured as having four faces. Then we have the seraph, the seraphim in Isaiah 6, 1 through 6. They have six wings. And then there's the third group, the living creatures, who are like seraphs in that they have six wings. But they are similar to cherubs in their different faces because the four that are before the throne of God and Revelation chapter 4, one has the face of a man, one has the face of an ox, and so on. And so uh, we'll look at that in just a minute, but they don't each have four faces. So it appears that these are three distinct categories of angels, and they're all 
focus on, they're very close to the throne of God, and they focus on this worship of God. And so in looking at these passages, what we're doing is trying to understand what the Scripture teaches, what we can learn about worship. And we know that singing start, started in the mind of God, that the, all the angels, the sons of God, sang for joy when God laid the foundation of the earth. So singing was a part of that. All of that indicates that there is some standard ultimately for, uh, for, for worship, and for, I mean for singing. We looked at a definition last time, and that emphasizes this, the idea of this response, the reverent adoration, spontaneous praise of God's character and works, the express commitment of trust and obedience to biblically revealed responsibilities. So there's something inherent that happens and that should happen in public corporate worship and in informal worship settings such as we have and by informal I mean we don't have a formal liturgical type of service where there's a lot of uh, pomp and circumstance where there's a reading corporate reading public reading or repetition of the of the creeds I think that can be helpful at times but when you do it all the time and nobody's taught what the creeds mean then it just it just wrote and it becomes just just a, a format and doesn't have any any meaning or significance. But what that's supposed to do is represent this second idea here, and that is that when you hear God's word, there is supposed to be a response. That's why we sing a hymn at the end of the message, is this is to help focus our attention in terms of a response to what we have heard from God's word uh, previously. And as part of worship, we remember God's gracious work of salvation, the personal work of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Lord's table. We remember that we are positionally identified with Christ in baptism. So all of this then also looks forward to its future uh, fulfillment. So we read last time, began here that in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So this describes the setting. And it's a time when there is uh, international instability. There is a threat to Israel because Assyria is now looming on the horizon, and Assyria will indeed invade from the east, and they will destroy in about 20 years, 18 to 20 years, depending on how you date this, this event, they will destroy the northern kingdom of Israel, then they'll go down into Judah, and they are going to lay waste to most of Judah and finally stop just outside the walls of Jerusalem. And so the point of all of this is that Isaiah recognizes that though the king is dead and uh, Uzziah or Josiah, or excuse me, Azariah, has been a source of stability the real stability is the true sovereign king of Israel who is God. And that's the same thing for us, is that no matter how unstable things may look on our horizon, whether it's a narrow horizon of personal health, personal finances, uh, whatever the personal uh, traumas might be in our life at any given time, 
Uh, God is greater than all of that, and our focus needs to be on him. And when our focus is on him, as Isaiah's focus is on God here, then those other problems fade in insignificance. They're not insignificant, but we realize that God really is is in control. And then in Isaiah 6-2, we have the reading above it, that is, above the throne of God, stood seraphim. Each one had six ring, wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So the two that allow him to fly keep him elevated above the throne. Now there's been speculation, it may be possible, we just don't know enough, may be, possible, may be such that the seraphim are now over the throne, so they're covering the throne of God in, because that was originally Lucifer's role, and because of his fall, he's replaced by these uh, seraphs. But two, he covered his face. Two, they covered their feet. They're not looking upon God. What we see when we look at these other passages is that when there is a theophany, God appears that you can't actually see his essence, who he, who he is in terms of his true inner glory. And Moses is not allowed to see that. He has got, we're going to look at that passage. God has him get back in a cleft of the rock, and God's going to pass by, and he's going to see the back of God, as it were. And the point there is that no one, not even these angels who surround his throne, look directly at God. They're covering their face. And this again points out that, that, that we shouldn't treat God as our common buddy best friend, which is where we've gone in our very lazy informal culture. And it is not that in some sense Jesus is our friend, but in another sense, when Jesus speaks, the, the, the unrighteous dead are going to flee into the lake of fire. That, that, as someone once said, it's really hard to be a buddy with a consuming fire. So we have to think of God in these elevated, elevated terms. But what is happening historically and politically in Isaiah chapter 6 is Isaiah is realizing that the faith and trust is not in the human king, or who the next king will be, but our faith and trust needs to be in God. It exemplifies the principle in Jeremiah seventeen five and 6. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart depart, departs from the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that you're juxtaposing trust in God with a measure of trust and reliance upon political leaders, because God instituted governments. They are ministers of righteousness. You have to keep this in the appropriate, uh, in the appropriate order, that God indeed rules over the affairs of men, but he does it through the government officials who are said by Paul in Romans 13 to be the ministers of righteousness. So they are the intermediate means by which God oversees and rules in the affairs of men. But we don't put our ultimate trust in men or in the flesh, but in God. He is the God who controls things. So um, 
We can't trust in man. Man is always going to fail us. Whether it's your parents, they will and have failed you. Whether it's your children, they will and have failed you. Whether it is your spouse, they will and have failed you in some one degree or another because we're all human. We all have sin natures. And so we can't ultimately put our trust in human beings. We have to put our trust in the Lord. And that's verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. Notice the parallelism between hope and trust, because hope is an extension of trust. Trust is relying upon, it is confidence in something, but hope focuses on a confidence in the future. It is a certainty of something that will happen. It is not how we normally use the word in terms of some sort of um, wishful thinking or wishful optimism. And then we see what they are saying to one another, these seraphs surrounding, flying over and covering the throne of God. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of the armies. He is the commander-in-chief over all of the angelic armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. So that means what is going on here? What does it mean to be holy? What does it mean that God has has glory? So we look at um, the impact of this immediately surrounding the posts of the door in the temple are shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And I pointed out last time that what we see here, God has opened up, as it were, a portal between his throne, between the cherubs on the Ark of the Covenant and his throne in heaven, so that Isaiah is looking from the earthly temple straight into the heavenly temple and the throne of God. Let's look at a parallel passage. I want to go to Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Now here, we're going to come into uh, see another type of angel. We've looked at cherubs. We've talked about the seraphs. Now we're going to talk about the, the living creatures, the living beings that are in Revelation chapter 4. So turn with me uh, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation 4 and 5 represents the throne of God. Prior to the opening of the first seal, the beginning of the tribulation, so it's between the rapture of the church and the beginning of the tribulation. But this can take place in a nanosecond in heaven, all of these events. Whereas on the earth, some period of time is going to go by. We don't know how long. It could be a few days, a few weeks, a few months, maybe even a few years. It's a transition period. Once the church goes, then there's going to be a transition until the rise of the Antichrist, and he signs a peace treaty with Israel. That's Daniel 9, 24 to 27. So what we see here is this picture where John, in verse 1, is taken up into heaven. And he is in the Spirit, and he sees the thrones set in heaven. And in verse 3, which I oh, I have skipped to 5 there. Let's put this slide up there. 
notice in this artist's rendition, I just think she's done a remarkable job doing this. Uh, you see that that emerald in, uh, that, that's depicted in Ezekiel chapter 10 that we just looked at. And the, the picture of, of all of the, the, the jeweled tones that are mentioned there. And so John has described the fact immediately as in the spirit, behold, a throne set in heaven and on the throne one sitting. So this is God the Father. This isn't the a presentation of the Trinity at this point. And we know that because when we get to chapter 5, we're going to see that the there is in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And if you trace that phrase, him who sat on the throne through Revelation, it is always God the Father. Jesus isn't sitting on his own throne. That means Jesus isn't now a king. He's not the Davidic king. There's no new covenant in effect today. And all of this talk that you hear that is so, so, so very popular in Christianity today that we are in some form of the kingdom is completely wrong. Jesus is waiting for the kingdom to be given to him. And when the kingdom is given to him, according to Daniel chapter 7, that's when he will return at the second coming. And in the meantime, he is seated at the right hand of God at, on the Father's throne, Revelation 3, uh, 21. So the one sitting on the throne is God the Father. He's got a scroll in his hand, and it's going to be the Lamb in chapter 5 who comes up and takes the scroll. So we don't have a representation of the full Godhead here on the throne. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, we read, and he who sat there was like jasper and sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald, very similar to what we see in uh, Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 1. Then in verse 4 we read, around the throne are 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, I'm not going to go into detail on this, but these represent the church. The crowns that they have, the Greek word there is Stephanos crowns. It's not a diademos crown. A diademos crown is a crown of a ruler. A Stephanos crown is a reward. This is an athlete would get a wreath, and that was called a Stephanos crown. So this is a rewarded person. They have these crowns, represents a reward. The only ones who'd be rewarded at this point are the church-age believers who are raptured. And furthermore, when we get into get down into Revelation chapter 5, it talks about uh, there's a song of praise to the Lamb who is worthy to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed. And King James will say accurately based on the majority, well, it's more than the majority text. It's not a majority text versus critical. There's only one, one Greek document that doesn't get it right that says you have, you, you have redeemed them to God. Okay, but because nobody could figure out how any believers are in heaven yet, they went with that one minority manuscript. But all the other manuscripts, both the ancient old manuscripts from Egypt as well as the majority of manuscripts, all have they redeemed us to God. Well, guess what, folks? Angels aren't redeemed. So angels can't be praising the Lamb and saying, you redeemed us. 
So it has to be human beings that have been redeemed, and so this must be church-age believers. And because they have Stephanos crowns, that means that they are raptured and rewarded at this point. So there were tw- in the Old Testament, there were 24 uh, divisions of the Levitical priesthood. And each time that they would choose those who would serve, they would cast lots and they would choose one from each of the 24 divisions. So there would be 24 who would represent all of the Levitical priests. This is the same idea. It's like when we elect congressmen and we send them to Washington, they represent us. They are working on our behalf there. And so this is the idea that you have these 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes. They have been purified. They are in resurrection body. They had Stephanos crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. This is very, very similar to the kind of thing that Moses describes in the theophany of God in Uh, Exodus chapter 19 and in chapter 20. There's lightning and thundering and earthquakes, all of this on Mount Sinai as God appears there. Then it says that seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne. And in the Old Testament, Isaiah 61 talks about the seven spirits of God. And this this here, the seven spirits of God, would be an emphasis on the role of the Holy Spirit, and they are uh, the the light. It has to do with illumination, the role of the Holy Spirit in illuminating, illuminating and making known the revelation uh, of God. And so, the reason that the Holy Spirit is pictured as these seven lamps is a reference to the fact that He's the one who illuminates the world to the knowledge of God. It's his role. He's the prime agent in revelation and in illumination and in the teaching of the word. In the next verse, in verse 6, we read, Before the throne there's a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. So again, eyes represent illumination, they represent knowledge, so it's emphasizing their knowledge. So let's see, that's very similar to what we read in Ezekiel chapter 10. But yet their description will be different. So there are these four living creatures, and in verse 7 we read that the first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature is like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. So these different, each individual has a different face. Unlike the cherubs where each individual had four faces. So they're not the same as cherubs. They have six wings like seraph, but they're different from seraphim. So there are apparently these three classes of angels who focus on on God and who have formed this inner circle that surround the throne of God and are always associated with his righteousness and his justice. They seem to have a relationship to the uh, judicial function of God, to his, to his justice. And the many eyes that are mentioned, here, mentioned in this passage would symbolize 
their complete knowledge of all things, and that is, they're not omniscient, but it relates to their knowledge of all things and their relationship with or in terms of justice. Verse 8 says, the four living creatures, each having six wings, so they're like seraphim, they're not, cherubs have four wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day at day or night. Now listen to what they say. It's the same thing they say in Isaiah. How long has this been going on? Now today we would say, oh, how boring, they just keep singing the same song. But they, that's good because they lost sight of the content and the focal point of worship. We get bored very quickly as human beings. We want to change things up all the time. And so what's happened in the present environment is you have people who've taken something, a phrase out of, out of context in Scripture and said, well, we're to sing a new song. They've interpreted that to mean that every generation has their own music. That's not true. That's not true historically, and that's not what it's talking about, is that as God intervenes in history, new hymns and psalms were written to celebrate that intervention in a person's individual life or in the history of Israel. That's what is meant by a new song. It's not saying a new kind of music for a new generation. Once you get by into the assumption of modern contemporary worship, what you're basically saying is that everything else is second rate. We're first rate now. We have something better. And then the next generation comes along and says they have something better. And it disconnects you from the rest of the body of Christ, the historical body of Christ, and their worship. When we sing hymns, a mighty fortress is our God, amazing grace, holy, holy, holy. When we sing these hymns that have stood the test of time, one wonders how long some of these choruses that are sung today will stand the test of time. Back in the 80s, when I was first really studying this, there were what I call contemporary courses at that time, and they were much more biblical than the ones today, but you don't hear them being sung today. Few, of, very, very few of them have stood the test of 30 years, much less centuries. And so when we sing these tried and true hymns, we are connected, we are locking shields with generations of believers who have sung these hymns to God. And when we take a view that somehow what we are singing today is better, it means more to us, we're setting ourselves apart in some arrogant manner as being better than the other generations. And we're not locking shields with all the generations of Christians that have gone before. We see examples of what they're singing here. They sing, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Revelation 4.11 expands on this a few verses later. Why are they singing this? They're singing this because you are worthy, 
O Lord. And this connects, if you look at Revelation 5, verse 9, we see that they're ta- they sing praise to the Lamb. You are worthy to take the scroll. And again in 9.12, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Only God is worthy because he is holy. And, he, and his worthiness and his holiness are expressed through his importance. He is distinct. And that is expressed through the word glory, as we'll see. Verse 11, 4.11 says, You're worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Now, glory is a word that emphasizes God's importance, stresses his uh, uniqueness, his distinctiveness, his, his significance in all of creation. And we honor him, that's respect, because of who he is and what he has done. What did he do? What are we praising him for? Because you you fired off an electrical discharge in a sea of protoplasm some millions of years ago, and somehow through a random chain of events that eventually brought forth human beings. Is that what's going on here? No. That's, creation is so important. It is central to who God is and what distinguishes the God of the Bible from all of the pagan gods and goddesses. We can't escape that. That's why there's such a battle over creation versus evolution. You, were, you created all things... And by your will, they exist. That's present tense. They continue to exist. Each moment, God lets us exist. If God relaxed that sustaining power for a nanosecond, we would just disappear. All of the universe would just disappear. It'd be gone. It would just be nothing. He sustains it. You created all things, and by your will, they exist and were created. And then compare that to Isaiah 6, 3. One cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Tzabaoth. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is what we have to talk about. Holy is Kadosh. That's the Hebrew word. It means that which is holy, but we lose that. What does that mean? Yes, most people will say, well, it means you're good. Not what it means. It means to be unique or distinct, one of a kind, or set apart. And then the other word for glory is the word kavod. Now, if you were around back in the 70s or even the 80s, there was an idiom that if you were impressed with something, somebody said something or did something or you saw something and it just stunned you and it was impressive, you'd say, man, that's really heavy. What you're saying is that's really important, that's significant, that's powerful. And this concept of expressing importance and something as being important 
has often been expressed through this concept of being heavy, and that's what kavod means. Its root meaning is heavy, but it came to express that that which was weighty, that which was important. Now, we talk a lot about the heart, but if you were in the ancient world, people didn't talk about the heart as much as they talked about the liver. The liver was the heaviest organ in the body. All the heart does was it pumps stuff through your body, but the liver was much more important. In fact, they would kill an animal in something called uh, heptomancy, and they would cut open the liver and read the liver to foretell the future. They wouldn't do that with the heart. They did that with the liver because the liver was considered the most significant organ because it was the, it was the heaviest organ organ. And another thing, just to sort of tie some loose ends together, is uh, for some years now I've been um, asking a question, why is the fat so important in the sacrifices? God says, I want the fat. I want the fat around the internal organs. That's mine. You don't get the fat. It's not because God wants you on a fat-free diet. And for a lot of people, they think, well, it's the fat that gives flavor and taste to the meat. So God wants the fat. And that hadn't been satisfactory. I've talked to Jay Collins about it. He's a veterinarian. He's talked about this and about that. But that was really doesn't explain why God put such an emphasis on fat. So the other day I'm listening to some lectures from Al Ross on biblical archaeology, and he's talking about these pagan gods and goddesses of fertility. And the fertility gods and goddesses are represented as fat, there, and, and it's prosperity theology, it's fertility, it's productivity. If you live in an agricultural environment, you want things to be productive. And if things are productive, you're going to have more food. You're going to have more food. You're going to eat more food. If you eat more food, you're going to be fat. Your animals are going to be fat. Your cattle are going to be fat. Your sheep are going to be fat. And, and you're going to be fat. And people who are prosperous are important, and they're fat, and they're heavy. Okay, see how all these things connect together. So this is where this idiom uh, comes from on kavod, is it's, it's weighty, you're important, it, it's fat. Now, tie that to, this, to the sacrifices. The reason God wants the fat is because God has been the one who's brought the blessing and the prosperity to you as a farmer, and you are giving him the first fruit, the first of your flocks in your herds, and you're giving him the fat, which symbolizes that God is the one who made you prosperous, and he's the one who, who made you fat. We even have that in idiom in English. We talk about somebody who goes who's very, very successful, and they have a lot of power, and we call them a fat cat. We still use that kind of imagery, okay? Because, you know, back in, back in, in, in when you're living on the farm, if you're not doing so well, you're, you're pretty thin. And if you get successful, then you're going to put on a little weight because you've got more food to eat. It all ties together. So let's talk about holy. Holy means unique, one-of-a-kind, distinct. That's what it's emphasizing here with God. God is holy. He's unique. 1 Samuel 2.2 2 states it. We studied this. <coughs> Excuse me. In, in Hannah's song, no one is holy like the Lord. 
that really emphasizes the core semantic value of that word. It means that God is one of a kind. You can't understand God because you have some analogies, but they're all going to fall apart because nothing is like God. That's why worship needs to be different from everything else that we do in life because God is different from anything else that we can imagine. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. God is unique. God's one of a kind. Psalm 86, 8, among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. God is one of a kind. He's distinct. Nobody can do what God does. Jeremiah ten six. inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord, you are great and your name is great and might. In other words, again and again, you get this idea reverberating through scripture that God is one of a kind and distinct and he doesn't need to be treated or approached like you treat or approach anything else or anyone else. Isaiah 44, 6, thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last besides me. There is no God. Notice there's two personages there. Just as a side point, there's Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. You've got God the Father, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer. That's the second person of the Trinity. And his Redeemer says, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. This is the same drumbeat you get all the way through the book of Revelation. Isaiah 44, 7, And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show these to them. Isaiah 44, 8, Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it and are my witnesses? Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Again, we have that idea he's a rock, as we saw with uh, 1 Samuel 2. So when we look at the essence of God, we have these 10 attributes we talk about all the time. God is sovereign, righteous, just, love, eternal life. He's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, veracity, and immutability. In each of those areas, God is unique and distinct. For many years, I heard, and I've heard theologians say, holiness basically summarizes righteousness and justice, and I think that's wrong. God is distinctively righteous. He is uniquely just. He is holy in his righteousness and holy in his deceit. Holiness applies to every attribute. He is one of a kind in the way he rules and why he rules because he's the creator of everything. He is unique. He alone is love. No one else is love. He is love. So he is holy in his love. He's one of a kind. He is the only one who is eternal. Therefore, he is holy in his eternality. He's unique in his knowledge, unique in his omnipresence, unique in his power, unique in his truthfulness, and he never changes and everything else does. So holiness applies to every other attribute, and it summarizes the totality of God as distinct. So we go back to Isaiah 6.3, and we come to the second word, which is kavod, which, as I said earlier, has that idea of, of literally meaning that which is heavy, but it came to mean that which is important, that which is uh, significant. 
And think about this when we put this into the way it's used in various passages. Here in we have Joseph in Egypt in Genesis forty five thirteen. And Joseph's brothers have come to him. There's famine in the land of Canaan, so Jacob has sent them down to Egypt where there's food, that they can get food and bring it back. And so Joseph is sending them back to uh, Jacob and tells them, so you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt. Is he saying you're going to brag about me? That's how some people would look at that. But what he's saying is, you're going to tell my father how important I have become in Egypt. See, that's what glory means. He has, he's second in command of all of Egypt. He's the uh, viceroy under the Pharaoh. So you shall tell my father of all my glory. And then in Isaiah 5.13, God is speaking, and this is a foreshadowing or prophecy of the captivity of the people when they are taken out of the land. So therefore my people have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. Their honorable men are famished. See, the word translated honorable there is kavod. Their important men, their leaders have gone hungry. If the leaders are going hungry, everybody else is in worse shape. Okay, so those are just two examples I picked out because they show the use of the word as meaning those who are important and significant. In, Gen- or in Deuteronomy 5.24 we read, And you said, Surely the Lord has, our God has shown us his glory and his greatness. The word there for greatness is the word gadol, which means great or powerful, and it's used as a synonym for glory. So it's talking about God's importance. When we glorify God, we are stressing the centrality of God to everything in our life, to the importance of God to everything in life, that he is unique and distinct, and he is central to everything. He is the most important thing in our life. In Isaiah 42, 8 I am Yahweh, that is my name, and my glory, my importance. I'm not going to share my significance with anybody. I alone am the most important, significant uh, being in the universe because I am the source of all being in the universe. God's glory is not shared. He's not going to share it with Idols with carved images. And that's the idea in Jeremiah 2.11. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods, but my people have changed their glory. See, glory there stands for that which is important to them. It is all that God is that sets him apart from everything else. It is his distinctiveness and his centrality. They have changed their glory for that which does not profit. In Isaiah 43, 7, we read, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, related to demonstrating my significance and centrality. I have formed him, yes, I have made him. And then in Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the importance of God. 
that if God can create all of the stars and keep the whole universe running, he's really important because without him, it all falls apart. So see how that, that changes your whole concept. It brings out a whole new focus in your understanding of holiness, that, I mean of glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. But, and then we'll, we'll see some other aspects of this. Psalm 24, 8, 9 to 10, we have this phrase, king of glory. So it picks up something else that because he is central, because he's the priority, because he's the most important, that means he is the, here it's trying to the king of glory. You have a genitive there. It's really an adjectival genitive. It should best be translated, who is this glorious king? Who is this important king? Who is this central king? That's the idea there. Uh, the Lord strong and mighty, Yahweh mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up your everlasting doors, and the glorious king, the important king, the central king, the only one who matters will come in. Who is this glorious king? Yahweh Sabaoth, who is the glorious king? Selah. Psalm 29.2 says, Give unto Yahweh the glory, the importance, the centrality in your life that is due his name. He is the anchor that holds together or should hold together every detail in our life. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. That in Your worship is distinct there, and that distinctiveness is, is what is beautiful, is distinct from everything else. Now we see glory used in the New Testament. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And every Christian that reads this, when they read that, they think of glory as the this effulgent light that is coming out from God. That is not what it's saying. Because when you get to John 2.11, Jesus has come to the wedding at Cana. And he's pretty much nondescript, and the disciples he had with him don't stand out. They look just like everybody else. And they're running out of wine. They've run out of wine. And Mary says, it's, it's, comes to him and says, you can solve the problem. We need more wine. And he says, it's not my time yet. And that's because he real, he hasn't reached the age when he hits public service at the age of around 30. So he changes the water into wine. And at the end of that episode, we read, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. Did anybody there know what he did other than Mary and the disciples? No. No, but it manifested his glory. There's no bright and shining light. Flashbulbs didn't go off in everybody's head going, wow, this is something. There was a miracle today. Nobody knew that. See, that's because we have the wrong idea of glory. But when you substitute the idea of importance there, that we beheld, this is what John says, we beheld the importance and the significance of Jesus of Nazareth. Now you've got a different idea of that verse. He's the only begotten of the Father. Now, the first thing he did that manifested, that showed us of his importance and his significance is that he changed the water into wine. 
And that demonstrated that he was a creator because only the, the creator could change water into wine. So we're going to stop there and come back next time to press this a little bit further. But now I've massaged and shaped your thinking of what holy means and your shaping and your idea of what glory means. So from now on, when you read that, you're going to do these word substitutions and talk about the uniqueness and distinctiveness of God and the importance and centrality and priority of God instead of glory. And now things are going to take on a new significance as you read through the scriptures. Father, thank you for this time that we've had together. May we get a fresh understanding of who you are and your centrality in our lives. And Father, we pray that as we study and as we probe your word, that we might have a response that heightens and focuses our worship, that we realize who you are and who we are, and that you are worthy of all glory. You should be the center, the most important thing in our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.